In Psalm chapter 18, we come to the last portion of this psalm, and really it's the last portion of several psalms because it's the culmination. Remember that we saw a, this is a category of psalms, Psalm 15, 16, 17, 18, as we walk really through the Passion Week of Christ as we go through these four psalms. And we found the struggle that was going on in 15, 16, 17. We compared that because we have uh, three different kinds of writing. We have a psalm, we have a mictum or an inscription, and we had a prayer. And so we had three approaches there to discuss and to work through uh, that really brought out the struggle of Christ in Gethsemane and in the weeks prior to that and then the hours after that. And it really came to a crescendo here in chapter 18, where it looks like, uh, well, we're trusting in the Lord, the outcome is in His hands, and uh, we are performing our function. We're, we find uh, a righteousness is the demand, and we find that the psalmist says, well, that's been my testimony. And of course, he is not so much speaking of himself in terms of David. Uh, we know his failings. We know those. Uh, and but why we talk about him as a type is that the the anti-type, the one that it points to, is the greater fulfillment of the type. The type is usually a lesser fulfillment. Anti-type is the better one, uh, the fuller one. And so he becomes a picture of Christ. And so uh, certainly what we've cited so far uh, can be kind of connected to David's life but overwhelmingly it is connected to Jesus' life and experience, and particularly, as I said, during that Passion Week. And we come to the end of chapter 18, and this is an exciting time. Now, this psalm, entire psalm, is a royal psalm, which means it's speaking of the king. And you might say, well, that is pretty good, um, but none of you are kings, nor is that our expectation. Uh, and so we want to approach this. Most Christians, when they approach the Psalms, take it very personally. Uh, that is that they believe it is a direct, they want to have a direct application to themselves. And we're going to see an application here a little bit. But when it comes to a royal Psalm, uh, <coughs> and this is going to be true of all the royal Psalms we find in the Psalms, it's going to be an indirect application. That is, it is applying to the king and as subjects of the king, we are the benefactors. We want a king over us that is righteous. We want a king over us that has the hand of God upon him. We want a king over us because if he is serving God, if he is following after God, if he is repentant towards God in his sin, some of those psalms are repentant psalms, then he will reign over us in righteousness. He will reign over us in truth. And that will help us not just to prosper materially, that might be an element of it, but more importantly, that we will prosper spiritually, that we'll prosper in our relation with God, with his blessing. And so we want the king to do well, recognize that if he does well, all the subjects in his kingdom should do well, particularly if he is doing so righteously. And so we have a secondary place in the royal psalm. We are the subjects of the king it speaks of. And so these psalms would have been sung at particularly royal events. Um, and while we say, long live the king sort of thing, we recognize what we're really saying is, Lord bless our king, and that we will, so that 
as a nation, we can experience blessing. And as individuals within that, that we can uh, rejoice in the leadership that you've given to us and follow them, follow their example. But when we come to this royal psalm, because of its strong Christological uh, connections, where it's definitely talking about Jesus Christ, uh, we have no problem, I hope, associating with that, that he is our king, and we want him to succeed because his success is for our benefit. We are the benefactors of everything that goes right for him. And we are the benefactors of his sacrifice, as we have seen. We are the benefactors of his struggle, as we saw in Gethsemane. We were the benefactors. When we look at David as king, we see that one of the things he was concerned about was his people. He wanted to do what was right in the sight of the Lord, not only in terms of his personal walk, but in his reign, how he ruled his people. He wanted to make sure that he did it in a godly manner. That's an important element. And oh, for a king that wants to serve God over you. Uh, it's kind of interesting because there are a few out there still today. Of They're just rare. Most of them are in Africa um, that want to serve God. I watched an interview this week where the, the president of Uganda was at a press conference and someone says, well, don't you want to hear the other side? Because they have basically outlawed homosexuality in that nation. And he just laughed. He just started laughing. He says, I don't want to hear the other side. There's no other side. There's only one right thing. And that's a husband and wife. It's just a phenomenal thing. You say, well, that's in Uganda? Yeah, I remember. I grew up in Uganda. was ruled by a guy named Idi Amin who was the polar opposite. Uh, and so they're still there. We're just not very well connected to them, and we don't hear about them much because they're not politically correct. And so, But to be ruled by someone righteous is a wonderful thing. Well, when we come to a royal psalm connecting us to Jesus Christ, we recognize that what we're doing is we're applying the, the title king to him. That we're really talking about Christ's kingship, now, to get to that kingship, we have gone through the struggle. We have gone through the, uh, the assault, the attack, the, the undermining, not only by the enemy, but by his, some of his closest friends, his allies even. And what he was confronting, well, what was he confronting was not just for himself, but for his kingdom. And that's an important part of these psalms, because we are his kingdom. It's not made with human hands but rather it is those who will place their trust in him, who will follow him, who will hear his voice. And so we come to this psalm uh, excited, um, certainly because we anticipate how it's going to end, because we know the story of Jesus. And it shouldn't surprise you. And so because he was righteous, because he was sinless, and, and was willing to sacrifice, be obedient to the point of the cross, he was obedient to that point, even willing to die, and that was the struggle in Gethsemane that was settled in a few hours where he was willing to hang on the cross, be obedient to the Father, fulfill his mission to be here, and because of that righteousness, we have a divine response. And the divine response um, is spectacular. This is Victory Sunday, um, and this is like, Resurrection part two, okay? So this is Easter part two for the year for you. So we want to pick up in Psalm chapter 18, verse 37, and we'll read to the end of the psalm. 
and uh, Lord willing, we'll get through it in less than 40 minutes. God's Word declares, I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I have wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies till I destroyed those who hated me. They cried out, but there was none to save. Even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. I cast them out like dirt in the streets. You have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the Gentiles. A people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his seed forevermore. What a powerful conclusion. We have been anticipating it. We have gone through the struggle. We have gone through the, the inscription. We've gone through all the praying. We've gone through the, the act of violence being perpetrated, uh, planned and perpetrated. We have seen the qualification of the one sacrificed. And now we finally come to the great victory. And there are some things here that might make you disconcerted because you've been convinced that these kinds of words and attitudes are... Um, not Christian, and so we don't like to pray that our enemies, you know, that I get to stay on the necks of my enemies kinds of things. Uh, but we're going to look at these descriptive passages and see the extent of the victory they're talking about because they're talking about a victory from top to bottom, complete and utter victory with no exception. That, of course, was not the fully the condition of David's kingdom. He never got that, but certainly he won battles, he won wars so that by the time his son comes along, there is peace in the land. But even towards the latter end of Solomon, there came up some divisions. And of course, right after Solomon, the whole country gets divided, uh, 10 tribes against two. And so uh, the idea that there was a complete, final, uh, forever accomplished victory um, wasn't really attained by David. Yes, he had some victories, no doubt, but enemies persisted. Uh, sometimes God would raise them up if David or Israel later on was disobedient. But remember, we're dealing with someone who was completely obedient and completely righteous as the center part of chapter 18 described for us. This person of righteousness that uh, met God's standard and therefore God would bless him. But that didn't mean he wouldn't suffer. You see, we have associated comfort with blessing instead of suffering with blessing. So God blessed him through suffering because he was righteous. And we don't think in those terms. We have not been indoctrinated that way. We have been convinced by mostly TV people that if God blesses you, he's going to do that by giving you wealth, by giving you comfort, by giving you the desires of the earth, not the desires of a godly heart, which should be to pursue righteousness 
and to glorify God. That should be the desire of your heart uh, and not to attain health, wealth, and, and fame. Um, but that we have been indoctrinated in that instead of the concept that suffering is blessing. And so the suffering servant on the cross was going to be blessed. Well, that blessing is an ultimate victory. We want the victory without the suffering, don't we? We want to attain the end without demonstrating faithfulness in the intermediate. We want to begin our Christian life over here and the joy of that reception of Christ and that release of our sin and that uh, that. Uh, presence of the Holy Spirit in us and, and all of that, we want to leapfrog from there to our reward. Uh, even the thief on the cross had hours of suffering between his proclamation of commitment to Christ and his death. Remember, they came across and they didn't break Jesus' legs because he was already passed. Um, but we forget sometimes that there was a Christian guy on a cross next door who did have his legs broken. Uh, they did punish him further, even after his profession of Christ and the promise of Christ, you'll be with me in paradise. And so so we want to leapfrog over and go from our reception and we think, well, it should be like this, this joyful, happy, carefree almost uh, experience from there until I get the victory Christ has accomplished for me. And we don't want anything in, 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 we don't want the middle section of these four psalms. We don't want the struggle and we don't want the violence. We don't want the suffering. Well, this is a righteous individual who has king, who is willing to do that. He's willing to suffer for not only his people, as we're going to find out, but he's really trying to accomplish a victory for more than just his people. He wants it for all people. And this is borne out at least two or three times in these last few verses. We discover that the victory isn't just complete in terms of his enemies being destroyed, but of the extent of his reign, of how many people are going to be blessed by his victory. And so we are celebrating the victory of Jesus Christ. We're going to see some of those enemies and why these terms look so important. But we also want to recognize the extent of this isn't just how many enemies are down? Do we not have any enemies? But how many peoples are benefactors of the suffering of the righteous king? And so we come into this and pick up with me again, back in verse 37. And we start off with really the pursuit of his enemies. And we have uh, this concept that uh, they're on the run. Pursuit is something that happens uh, towards the end of the battle. Really, Christ, once he dies on the cross in a righteous, obedient condition, has already won. Uh, it is simply a matter for the pursuit to be completed and for the enemy to be fully destroyed. And the enemies we're talking about here um, are going to be broad. So we're going to try to list off some of them for you. Some of them, you might think, well, that's not a person. It's hard to do that, but the Bible does personify them. Uh, one is sin. Sin is an enemy that's going to be destroyed. Where Christ becomes sin for us, he's going to conquer sin. Death, obviously, with the resurrection. But there's also those who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children's children. And let we'll take the blame. 
we have the evil one who tempted him in the garden and, and, and uh, certainly was in, involved. It says that it entered Judas himself. And so we find that it was the evil one that he wanted to get victory over. Uh, it was all those that hate God. He's going to describe those, those that hate them. Even the religious leaders of Israel, we're going to find, is on the list. <coughs> and they're going to be destroyed. They're going to have victory over them. Now, you might say, boy, victory over religious leaders? Yes. God can give you victory over religious leaders who are misleading the people into error. And that's what was going on in Israel. That's why Jesus Christ had so much contention with the Pharisees and Sadducees, with the, with the Sanhedrin, was because they were leading their people religiously into error to reject the Messiah when he came. And that's why he calls them your whitewashed sepulchers. You're pretty on the outside, but you're dead, dead, dead on the inside. And so this was an enemy. And certainly we saw that in the in his Gethsemane, in the prayer passage that we had recorded there in, in chapter 17. And so the concept isn't just the enemies on the outside, they're on the inside. And so we need to have victory there. And so this is the breadth of the victory we are anticipating um, and that God gives him. But it required something of the king. The king doesn't sit on his throne to gain victory. It says, I pursued them. I didn't turn back. I've wounded them. He has done his responsibility. He has engaged the enemy. The one time that David failed in this respect because they said, oh, you're too old, it's too dangerous, you're too weak, we want you to keep you back. And of course, he wasn't too weak, though, to have a child by Bathsheba, was he? Uh, and so he didn't go out to battle when the kings go out to battle. When he, and he just failed. Well, Jesus Christ didn't fail. He pursued the enemy completely, all the way through till full, complete victory that God would give him uh, and the Bible describes that Jesus Christ, even after his death, was going to descend into Hades and take captivity captive. He wasn't done even while he was dead, he was pursuing. He was going down into and, and going to take captivity there. So not only was he victorious on the earth, but also in the underworld, if you will. Uh, he is going to be victorious there. He's going to exercise his victory there and pursue his enemy even there. And that's a spectacular, the extent of God's victory. Uh, but remember, it was the pursuit of the king. The king is out there doing his job. It's not just I'm going to sit back and relax and then the father will give me victory. No. You have to go out on the battlefield. You're going to have to engage the enemy. And the psalmist says, the king the king of kings, he engaged the enemy. He pursued them. He overtook them. He did not turn back. He wasn't going to stop until they were destroyed. He was going to gain a complete victory, not just for himself, but for his people and ultimately for all people. The pursuit of the enemy to this extent is necessary so there can be complete peace. If the enemy isn't completely destroyed, you can never have complete peace. You can have false peace. You can have a period of peace. 
But if you don't completely destroy the enemy, you will not have complete, perfect, established, eternal peace. And so these pursuits in this description give us this concept of how far he had to go and to give us that victory by giving himself or working himself toward that victory. We pick up in verse 39 and we find that while all the enemies have fallen toward his feet, he says, here's where I got the strength from. You have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies. And so we have a cooperative effort, right? Here's what I've done. I've done the part that I have to do. As king, this is my responsibility. As Messiah, this is what I was called upon to do. I will do my part. I will pursue. I will uh, uh, not turn back. I will overtake them. I'll do whatever is necessary. But <laughs> I don't forget that it is God who strengthens me. That's really God who gives me the victory. And this is that cooperative that really is necessary for a successful Christian life and the warfare, Christian warfare, that we're engaged in. And our warfare is very different than the Islamic warfare, where the Islamic says, you know, pray to Allah or we'll kill you. Um, our warfare is spiritual, and it's one where we want to strive towards righteousness, recognizing that the evil one, the world, and our own flesh doesn't want us to succeed. Does it? So we're at war there. And we come to Ephesians 6, other passages that talk about the Christian life as a warfare. Well, it is not an individual endeavor. You are not on your own. Uh, the king doesn't go out there. We saw that earlier where we saw the king go out and he had to be delivered from these other giants that could overtake him, that could overthrow him. Um, but God brought others in to protect David. Uh, but we find that for Jesus Christ, he's going to do his responsibility but not unilaterally, just by himself. He recognizes right away that it's the Father, the Father. You read through the, through, the, through the Gospels, and you'll see that. It's the Father. He keeps going to the Father, the Father. Even the prayer in Gethsemane, yeah, his words on the cross. He was in this with the Father. These things were done together. And so here in the psalmist, we have these two things giving ultimate victory. I will do the pursuing that I have strength to do. The reason I have the strength to do this is because the Father gives it. I will overtake my enemy. The reason I'll do it is because the Father has delivered them into my hands. I will crush them. I will destroy them because they're given to me by the Father. And so the Father is the one. You have given me their necks. You have destroyed those who have hated me. Um, and you are doing that. You have subdued them to me. And so I. this is a cooperative effort. And the Christian life is a cooperative work. We are not passive in it. It is not sit back and then if, if we don't get the victory, it's God's fault. Um, you just sat there. Can't give you the victory if you're not going to get up and go to war. You have to be engaged in this battle. And recognize that there is a real battle out there. That walking the Christian life is not easy. It's hard. And there's going to be many opponents that want to keep you from doing it successfully. But greater is he that is in us, the Bible says, right, than he that is in the world. And so we can sit back and say, well, I don't need to fight because 
God's going to win the battle for me. Wrong. And Jesus Christ modeled this for us. He's going to do his part. He's going to go out there. He's going to go to that battlefield. He's going to pursue the enemy. He's going to not, he's going to overtake them. He's not going to give up. He's going to press, press, press toward the victory. And this we find in Paul's writing in, in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, right? I don't think I have attained. This is late in his life. Paul's one of the last books Paul wrote. And he's saying, I have not given up. I don't want to drop off. I want to pursue righteousness. I want to pursue God. I want to embrace suffering. Because I don't want to fail here at the end. I want to finish the race. I want to keep the course. I'm going to do my part. Am I doing it by myself? No. God will strengthen me. God will subdue my enemies. God will destroy them that stand in my way. But I have to be a moving entity. I have to be obedient. And Jesus Christ is still obedient. And so he was obedient to the very end, even after his death, still obedient, still taking charge. When he descends into Hades, he's not going to sit there and say, I just got to wait three, you know, three days, three nights, belly of the whale. No, he's getting busy. He's gathering the group. He says, I'm taking captivity captive. You guys aren't going to be here anymore. We're emptying out Abraham's bosom. You're going to be with me and the Father. And, and this is victory stage two. Maybe stage one. Oh, maybe stage two is ours. And so it would be stage one because those are Old Testament saints. Down there. So this is victory, but it's pursuit of the enemy who's already beaten. Why did Jesus know the enemy was already beaten? Because of the middle portion of verse 18, his righteousness. He was obedient all the way to the death. He did not fail in any respect. But he's still dependent upon the Father because the Bible is very clear that Jesus Christ didn't raise himself from the dead over and over and over again. Read it in the book of Acts. If you read through the whole book, read the sermons. Here's what they say. Peter will say, you crucified him. God raised him from the dead. And so Jesus Christ had this act of violence against him. You people crucified him. God raised him from the dead. So Jesus Christ didn't raise himself. The Father did. Because his sacrifice was accepted. And so we have a model, again, for us, that we don't fight the Christian warfare in isolation on our own. We have access to the Father. We have, uh, hopefully, an army around us of fellow believers that we are engaged in. We are part of a kingdom, a community. Uh, we are not the kings. We are the obedient subjects who are getting the benefit of a wonderful king who has gained the victory on our behalf. And so we go from I, I, I to you, you, you. And now we're going to talk about they, they, they. <laughs> okay, we're going to pick that up in verse 41. They cried out, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. This should be the most frightening verse to you in this whole section. Everything else is excitement, excitement, and, and happiness and joy, and, and you should be jumping up and down. We should have a party for this. This is a victory celebration passage. This one passage should startle you a little bit. 
Not the first part. You know, these people are crying out, you know, that, uh, oh, we done something wrong. Uh, they cried out, there was none to save them. There was none to save them. And then it says, to the Lord they cried out. But he did not answer them. And as I listed off the enemies of Christ, remember those religious leaders. Let there be no mistake, they believed in God. Every one of them believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every single one of them who cried out, crucify him, believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were at the temple praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were giving sacrifices according to the law of Moses. They believed in the God that Moses met with on the mountain. That's who they prayed to. Let there be no confusion here. Some of the enemies of Jesus Christ and of the kingdom of God are those who claim the very name of that very same God. And we don't want to acknowledge that, that that might be the case today. There are people who are praying to the same God you're praying to, but God doesn't hear them because they are his enemies. And this, again, we find in almost every epistle, every letter in the New Testament, that there are people in the church who are introducing error and that there's nothing but destruction for them. They are enemies of the cross. They are doing injury to God's people. They are spots on your love feast. There's a variety of ways they're described in Scripture. And they are not to be tolerated. They are not to be pandered to. They are not to be, well, maybe we can love them into the kingdom. They are the enemies of the kingdom of Christ. And I find nowhere in the New Testament that we are supposed to try to reach them, but rather isolate them. We are called upon to call them out, identify them, separate from them, and pray against them, for they are the enemies of Christ. They said, Pastor, that's not very loving. What they're doing is worse. Because if you sit under the ministry of a man like that, guess what? You're going to be led in a direction away from God because you're being led by his enemies. That's called becoming a traitor. And you were studying a little bit of that in Sunday school this morning with our adults, right? Um, who could Ishbosheth trust? You know, well, it wasn't his kingdom, and everyone knew it. Everyone knew that God gave the kingdom. They all follow that God. Um, but there were those that wanted power for themselves. They wanted, their motives are questionable, and they become a, a, a division within the kingdom. And they're actually working against the king that they claim to be serving. Uh, and so that's true in the church. We're going to have individuals that are going to be praying to the same God we're praying to. But God won't answer. And the challenge is we don't want to become part of that group. We don't want to be identified by that. We don't want to be led by that. We don't want to be susceptible to that. We don't want to be strengthening our walk. We want to be fighting the fight. Uh, we want to be pressing on to the goal, the high prize of, of, of God in Christ Jesus. We want to 
finish the race. Because we don't want to be in this verse. We don't want to be one of the days that cry out to God, but God won't answer them. He won't save you because you are his enemy. And so we need to take that inventory every now and then of our life, and I really pursuing Christ as a member of his kingdom. Is he my king? Will I serve him this day? Will I obey him? I don't want to be part of the they of verse 41 because there's no hope. If Jesus Christ is the final victory and you're not 100% in his camp, you are in deep trouble because that makes you his enemy. And we just heard what's happening to his enemies, right? Well, let's, if you, in case you forgot, let's remind each other, verse 42, I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. I cast them out like dirt in the streets. Okay, now that's a pretty strong imagery, right? I've just destroyed my, I pulverized them and I just swept them up and threw them out in the street. Now you put your dirt in the trash can um, up at the Bahamas when we sweep out the cabins, we just put it in the streets, uh, which are just gravel. And so we just throw it out there. And he's basically saying, we have pulverized the enemy. They are nothing. You just go up and sweep them up. They have no power, no strength, no, no structural capacity. They are just sand. And that is the complete victory that God gives. He, he doesn't just injure them. He doesn't just barely uh, overcome them. He pulverizes them and casts them out. And of course, Christ talked about that whole idea of being cast out in outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That this is the alternative of being part of the kingdom. There is no, there is no neutral ground here. Okay? There is no, well, I'm not part of the kingdom, but I'm not one of God's enemies. You know, I believe in God. Doesn't work that way. You know, there is no Switzerland in this war. And Switzerland is a neutral country during World War II and such. But there is no place like that. This is a war where you're either for Christ or you're his enemy. And the idea that somehow you can float somewhere in between is just foreign to God's word. You're either going to have complete victory in Christ or you're going to be pulverized. That's the options. There's not a third option really available. Uh, just saying I believe in God and even praying to Jesus um, isn't sufficient. And there are millions upon millions who are going out there praying to Jesus. And yes, it's the same Jesus that you pray to. The one that died on the cross. The one that rose from the dead. The one that was born of a virgin. Uh, they believe all those things. They pray those prayers to the same person. Just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. But they do not have an obedient relationship with God. Because they do not follow after God with all their heart. Sometimes out of ignorance and sometimes out of perverseness. And I believe that those who are led that way are in ignorance. But again, there is no gray area here. Either we are looking to Christ as our King, Lord, Savior, and the 
propitiation for our sins, the completed atonement for us, that we are not seeking to earn that or, or, or trusting our own works at all. Um, that is completely the victory of Christ, that I am simply a subject. Um, but as soon as I want to add my efforts to that and to, for the, to atone for any of my own sins, um, I fail. And if I'm taught to do so and don't know any different, then I'm still failing. They have access to God's Word. They could find out differently. And yes, they're praying to your Jesus. I'm not talking about Mormons. They have a different Jesus. They're not praying to your Jesus. Yeah, they've redefined Jesus, and so is the Jehovah's Witness. You know, Jehovah's Witness, Jesus is the brother of Satan, and they're both emanations of God, not actually God, things like that. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about those cultic groups. They have a different Jesus. I'm talking about people who claim the same Jesus you have. But God will not save them. For they are actually enemies of the cross, for they have not subordinated themselves to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We come then to the results. The victory has been accomplished, and now what does it mean for his kingdom? And this is where we should find our place. You have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of, your text probably says the nations, it's really the Gentiles, and that is extraordinary. You should all be clapping right now <laughs> that that word is there, because that's where you are. I don't know of any of you that are Jewish or Israelite. Um, so you should be rejoicing right there. Someone should have said amen somewhere along there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, you guys are really slow today. I don't know. Is it that hot that you guys can't? Uh, the extent of God, Christ's work, the extent of this victory isn't just for me and mine. The extent of this victory is a pursuit of the enemy beyond even one border. And that's what's being described here. God has given me this victory over all borders, over the nations, over the Gentiles. And so, because the people who are against God are against you. They are your enemy too. Sin, Satan, um, death, these are all your enemies. Religious people who don't have, a, don't have the truth, these are your enemies, even if you are in their camp. And so when, when we go in and... and a godly, righteous king conquers your country and, and you're being ruled by this oppressive, nasty king, you don't complain. You're like, oh, this is so much nicer to be reigned by a man of God instead of this ogre. And you don't complain. And so he says, listen, these people that were their enemies, um, you, I gave me victory over them. They, they were against me and they were even among my own people. So Christ was opposed by some of his own people, but the victory he got destroyed some of his own people so that salvation could go to all people. It is a phenomenal event. And we should be rejoicing that Christ did this. He didn't just set a boundary of his sacrifice for you have to be Israeli. You have to move to Israel and get circumcised. No, there is no boundary now. The victory is so complete, the enemy is so destroyed, 
There is no boundaries for the kingdom of Christ any longer. The only boundary that holds him back is the boundary of your heart. That's the only one. Because that was given to your creation, the image of God, the authority of self-direction is yours to possess, and Christ will not overcome that. So whatever you choose, that's your choice. You can serve me, you can serve yourself, you can serve the world, you can serve money, you can serve idols. You have to choose. That's the only boundary now. There's no other boundary for the work of Christ. No national boundary, no linguistic boundary, no religious boundary. Um, there's no boundary out there. We can invite all to Jesus Christ because he has gained the victory for all. They are under an oppressive regime. And Christ has destroyed that regime. It's just the people don't know it yet. Frankly. They're going to keep going on their life now realizing that in the upper echelon, the capital, there's a new king. And they aren't serving him. And they don't recognize, realize what is available to them because of that great victory. He goes on, describes them, a people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners, that's the other foreigners, fade away and become frightened from their hideouts. So while the offer is everywhere, it requires something. You have to submit. You have to hear and obey. That's it. I have to be receptive to it, humble myself before, and that's why I come to Jesus Christ and I say, I have nothing to offer you. Uh, I have no righteousness of my own. They're all filthy rags. They're all worthless. I cannot attain to, to, a, to a toe in your kingdom, to a foot in the door even. I am trusting fully in Jesus Christ. I humbly bow before you. And that is what required. And, and what a wonderful thing. And again, we're going to talk about this time. We talk, refer to God's relationship with matter. And we're talking about that whole voice. They hear and they obey. What do they hear? Well, they hear the good news that you're supposed to be telling them. They can't obey what they haven't heard. And that's what Romans 10 says. How can they believe in him whom that heard? And, and how can they hear unless somebody is sent to them? to speak to them the truth. And so the victory that Jesus has accomplished is not just for a select few people, but it's for all people. And it remains a single barrier between man and the kingdom of God, and that is the will of man. That is the only barrier. God has not introduced any other barriers. destroyed them all. They have been pulverized. They're just swept up and thrown out as dirt in the streets. Why? Because the Lord lives. Verse 46. The Lord lives. He has been resurrected from the dead. He lives. Blessed be my rock, he says. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. 
and he will avenge me and subdues the people under me. Now we are transitioning a little bit. This is a little bit of a different tone than what we saw in just a couple of verses earlier. This tone, this word avenge is a little different. And I think we are jumping even farther forward into when we will experience that full victory of the power of the resurrection that not only delivers us, but destroys some. And we've talked about that, that the enemies are destroyed. Um, well, there's also not only the, the victory that was accomplished at the resurrection, but there is another victory when Christ comes as king, and it says that he will be avenged at that time, and when the wrath of God is poured out on the earth, and when all the nations have to bow, whether they believe in him or not, every knee will bow, not by choice, because they have heard and obey, but because God has subdued them. You don't want to be in that category. On the other side of Christ's second coming, of, of the rapture, there is no opportunity for that. The time to hear and obey is today, because today is the day of salvation. That day, you will be subdued. You will bow the knee but it will be a matter of subjection by this word avenge, by the strength of God's wrath. That is how men will be forced to bend. And you don't want to be in that category. And again, this is not just the people of Israel, but all the peoples will be subdued. Better to be among the nations of the peoples, the Gentiles that hear and obey. As soon as they hear it, they obey. Oh, how blessed to be among that number you are today. If you have heard the gospel and obeyed it. If you have not, I invite you to do that today. The alternative is miserable. We're going to pursue this theme in the next few verses as well. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You deliver me from the violent man. Therefore, I'll give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. Great deliverance he gives to his king. Shows mercy to his anointed, to David, his descendants, or seed forevermore. So the victory is going to be accomplished at the resurrection. It's going to be further accomplished at the coming of Christ when he brings this age to its end, and that violence is taken from the earth. He's going to be delivered from the violent man, and this requires the lifting up of the suffering servant. And so the one that we saw suffering was found righteous. God gave him a victory, destroyed his enemies, and then lifted him up. And this is that place of honor, that he has been fully crowned that he has been fully enthroned. He is now not just uh, in a spiritual reality the king, but he is truly king of kings, for all nations have been subjected to him, whether they chose to or not. Now they have all been in that condition. Some have gone off after the resurrection to eternal life, some to eternal damnation. And so all men will be resurrected. All men will bend the knee, some by force, some because they, as soon as they heard it, they obeyed it. And they had numbered themselves with that king, though they were of another kingdom prior. And so we have this wonderful 
laying out of the extent of the victory. And again, we have the king giving thanks to God among the Gentiles or the nations. And that we are participating in it. It is a crowning event. It is the uh, place where certainly as soon as one king dies, the other king becomes king, but then there's a coronation. Coronation comes later, right? We've had that transition happen here recently, right? When the Queen of England died and then we're building up. It wasn't just they didn't coronate. They didn't have a coronation right away, but immediately the king, Charles, there we go, uh, is king. Well, he, he, there's, it's not nobody's king till the coronation. He's king as soon as mom dies. He's the king. But then there's a coronation later. And so Jesus Christ was king as soon as he was resurrected. He was the victory. He was in the throne room of God. He was given the scrolls at that time. He broke them open and we're waiting for the sixth seal. That's it. I mean, that, that's there. He gained the victory and the songs of heaven changed. All that occurred at the, after the resurrection, the ascension. But the coronation, I say 2,000 years, well, remember, that's just a couple of days to God. Days, 1,000 years, 1,000 years a day. So, Coronation is later? Yes. Is it among all the nations? Yes. Not only of those that he has saved, that as soon as they heard obeyed, but also the nations that didn't obey. For they must recognize him as king of kings and lord of lords. But too late. They're going to be doing it from a place of punishment, not from a place of blessing. Whenever... A Roman emperor, Caesar, had great victories in the battlefield. They would have this procession coming into Rome. And often they would have these inscriptions. And in fact, because of that, we kind of have a good idea what the Ark of the Covenant looks like because one of the things that they apparently possessed was the Ark of the Covenant when they conquered Jerusalem. And so we have the Ark of Triumph. And so the idea is we're going to bring this procession in. And the procession wasn't just filled with victorious soldiers following their emperor. It was also filled with slaves, the conquered. Many who would meet their demise in the Colosseum, others that would be put into servitude in other places in the Roman Empire. Uh, but the question is, which ones do you want to be a part of? All of them were going to have to be submissive to Rome but would you rather be a citizen or the slave? So everyone's going to be submitting to Christ one day. Really, the only question is, in what capacity? By your will, by your choice, or by his force? And so, everyone's going to be singing praises to his name. Jesus Christ himself says, I will sing to you, the Father. We have a new song in heaven. Describe, and there is yet a third new song in the Bible and then a final one in Revelation. And so we sing these praises to God because of his great victory for what he has done for us. And this is culminated in verse 50, that this deliverance was given to the king. The king got this deliverance. We are the secondary benefactors of that. And so we're going to celebrate his victory as if it's our own because we benefit from having such a wonderful king over us now who has done this 
for us. Certainly, verse 50 tells us that David is to be included in this as one of the anointed. But he also talks about his seed, his descendants forevermore. David didn't live forever. And only in one person are his descendants eternal, and that is in Jesus Christ. And it's there that mercy is found. Even as God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him victory, God will also raise us up to that same victory. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for an opportunity this morning to celebrate the wondrous victory that you've accomplished for really all men. And yet we still find so many that want to rebel against that and not submit to it. Lord, help us to not be of that number. Guard our hearts from trusting in ourselves, our own actions, attitudes, our own religiousness, that we might trust in you and you alone. Lord, we rejoice today in the extent of your victory, that all the enemies of mankind are completely destroyed. They're just waiting to be swept away. They have no power but what we grant them. Lord, we thank you that you have not only delivered us from so many enemies, but that you have offered it to so many people, to all who will hear and obey. Lord, we know that there are many out there who haven't heard Give us an urgency about telling even those that we encounter about your son Jesus and what he has done for them. Lord, we also know there are many who hear, sometimes even weekly, who have Bibles in their homes who do not obey, who have not submitted themselves, subdued themselves to you. Lord, we pray that you might open their eyes and bring conviction in their lives that they might turn from that evil of self-righteousness, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, and trust in you with all their heart. Lord, we rejoice again in the privileged position we have because of the power of your victory on our behalf. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.